The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. And our study today is the Lord's letter to the church at Laodicea. And I realize that there are many Christians who don't regularly read and study the Bible. And I can assume that those who don't go to church rarely read and study the Bible. And because of that, it's possible to make references to Bible passages that most people have never heard and they don't know anything about. Some of the common sayings that we have in our everyday language came from the King James Version of the Scriptures, and people don't realize that they were first said in the Word of God. A phrase like, skin of the teeth, most people don't know that that comes from the Bible. Another one is, the twinkling of an eye. And how many people know that that refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ? And there are many phrases that are like that, that have made their way into the common language without people knowing that when they say them, they're actually quoting the Bible. Well, another phrase that many don't recognize originated in the Bible comes from this passage in Revelation chapter 3, and it's a reference to the church at Laodicea where the Lord calls them a lukewarm church, and He says that lukewarm is sickening. And from this we get the term lukewarm Christianity, And anybody who knows anything about the Bible knows that a lukewarm Christian is a half-hearted Christian. It's a Christian that's wishy-washy, one that doesn't stand for anything, one who doesn't live the faith that he claims. And then for those that are a little more theologically astute, they know that the Laodicean church represents a church that has the name Christian over its door, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with Christ. And so you can go inside that church and you can look for him, but you'll not find him. Verse number 20 is a good indication in this text that this church at Laodicea didn't belong to Christ, that he's outside knocking on the door because there's no one inside that cared to let him in. Of the seven churches, this is the one in full decline. This is the fallen church. This is one that has gone so far into apostasy that the Lord doesn't even have a foot in the door. Now therefore, the other churches that were in various stages of decline, and they were in in the process of pushing Christ outside of the church, but this is the church and what it looks like from the fall from the top down to the bottom. This is where that fall ends. This is rock bottom. And so the others are pushing Jesus out the door, but this one has him outside the door with that door locked behind him. Now the progressive steps of decline are interesting. The first church was the church at Ephesus, and although they were a church that fought against immorality, and they were a church that was very strong theologically, they lost their love for Christ. Oh, I think that they love being a church, and they like doing Christian things, but they weren't in love with Christ. And that's the first step downward. It's when you take your eyes off of Christ and you lose the focus of Him. And that's when the slide begins. And soon the doctrine of the church will suffer. And soon the morality of the church will suffer. And eventually 
It doesn't look like the Christian church any longer. And so finally, Christ is outside of the church. And that's Laodicea. This is Christless Christianity. This is a church without Christ, which is a contradiction and is nothing but confusion. I want us to read this letter again and be reminded that this is not where we want to be. And if you regularly hear me say things like, We preach Christ. And we want to uphold Christ. We want to exalt Jesus Christ. We do because we don't want to begin a slide that ends up right here as the church in Laodicea with Christ on the outside of the church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I want to pick up our study where we left off last week. We were discussing the familiar pattern of these letters and how our expositions of the seven letters have followed the outlines just as Christ gave them. And so we begin always in those letters with the salutation and uh, the author who introduces himself with a descriptive phrase, and that author is Christ. Then next comes his commendations, and then condemnations with all the warnings. And then Christ proceeds to promises of good things if the church will obey him and change and do what he says. Then finally, all the letters end with, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. With the exposition of the letters, I've chose to go, or this one I've chose to go to the end of the letter to start. And that's because of this disheartening picture of verse number 20, which is the Paul that hangs over this entire text. It's Christ outside of the church. And if he is outside the church, then what good can be said about the inside? There is no virtue in anything that we do without Christ. A spiritual or a church can't be spiritual, it can't be upright, it can't do Christ's work without Him. And if He's outside the church as we see it here, that changes the whole dynamic, that changes the complete approach of how we deal with this letter. And so looking at the end of the letter, we begin with the desire of the Amen. Christ is the Amen of the church and his desire is that he would never be on the outside standing on the stoop 
out on the porch of the church. His desire is not to be shut out and held out by a locked door, but his desire is to find repentance and faith and fellowship. And that's the only way that his blessings will be on the church. Now the part that we discussed last week is the major reason that Christ was on the outside. And I believe that we find a clue to that here in the salutation. Each of these salutations begins with a description of the Savior, and this time it began with a very strange one. He said, I am the Amen. And that took us into the Old Testament, searching, looking for a place where we can discover the meaning of that statement, I am the Amen. And we found it in Isaiah 65, in the 16th verse, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. That phrase, the God of truth, and swear by the God of truth, that's the Hebrew word, Amen. Amen is the English equivalent of it, which is, little more than an English pronunciation of the original Hebrew word. And so thus, when you would read this in the original language, you would come to that phrase, the God of truth, or swear by the God of truth, and there you would say, Amen. Because that's the Hebrew word. Amen is the word. Amen is an affirmation. Jesus said, I am Amen. And that means that He is the self-affirmed truth. And why is He self-affirmed? Well, it's because there's no one greater than Him. There's no one greater to affirm it. No one's higher that can attest to Him. There is no one who is ever called to vouch for Christ because no one has higher authority than Him. And so He is the faithful and true witness of Himself. And that problem of higher authority happened to me some years ago when I went to the bank to borrow money to buy my house. The bank said, Give us the name of your supervisor so we can call and verify your employment. And I said, well, being the pastor of a Baptist church, there really isn't any higher authority in the church that you can call. I am that I am. I didn't really say that part, but I said, you, you, can't, call on a, you can't call on a higher authority in the church to verify me. But of course, I do have a supervisor, and I'm sorry, he doesn't have a phone. You won't be able to call him. My point here is simply this. There is nobody who vouches for Christ. You can't call anybody. You can't ask anybody about Him to vouch for Him because He is the self-affirmed highest authority of all. Now we have a clue to the terrible heresy of Laodicea by looking at that. That here we find in this beginning verse that Jesus must stand up for His deity, that He has to pull rank and say, there is no authority higher than me. And why should he need to do that? Why does Christ need to tell his own church that he's the highest authority? Well, it must be because they thought somebody was higher. They must have believed that Jesus was not fully God. And so their error could be that they thought that Jesus was less than God. And if you make that, fella, that mistake, you can't have fellowship with him. You won't have Christ inside your church because He'll not go in where that authority is not recognized. And so thus we see Jesus calling from the outside and telling them, you've got to correct what's on the inside because He's not going to step foot where He's not recognized. It's God of God and King of Kings, the Almighty, the Sovereign, 
holy Jehovah God. The next clue that this is a problem is in the last part of the description. He is the beginning of the creation of God. And I left you with some homework to do last week. And I ask you to think about that phrase and decide if you know something or you can find something that would decipher the meaning of it. This week I had some homework turned in. Donna Miller turned in her homework on Wednesday evening and said, I did my homework and I've got it all down here. And I said, well, Donna, would you like to preach this message for me? Because she's pretty much got it all outlined here exactly as I would do it right here in the message today. And you see, Bible scholars, the reason this is a problem is because Bible scholars say that the phrase uh, is ambiguous in English, that it can actually have two meanings. It could mean that Jesus was created at the beginning He was created, or it could mean that Jesus is the creator, that he is the originator of all things. At the beginning, he created. And so do we have any evidence in Scripture that clarifies the meaning? And this is actually how confusing Scriptures are determined. Is there a clearer statement that we can find on the same subject? So when you have confusion about something that you read in the Bible, do a little research. Go to some other places and see if there's something that clarifies what you're trying to understand. Now, we don't want to assign a meaning to a scripture that's going to be contradicted elsewhere. The Bible never disagrees with itself. Our interpretations may sometimes be contradictory, but the Bible is never. So was Jesus the first thing created, or is he... The Creator. Let's see if we can answer that. Bible studying is, in, Bible says, interesting. Uh, you think about the connections. I didn't begin last week by reading the Laodicean letter. You remember? I, I started last week by going to the book of Colossians and reading the letter, part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Colossae was close by. It was in the same river valley as the city of Laodicea. And there was something that was going on over at Colossae that caused Paul to write a letter to that church. They had some kind of a problem over there, and so he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And no doubt, Paul wrote many letters that strengthened churches, and there's only a few of those letters that survived. God saw fit to preserve some of them, and they are the Holy Scriptures that we read here, the ones that Paul wrote that have been preserved. Now, the letter to the Colossian church is one that's vital because there are major doctrines that are addressed. What happened in Colossae? What's going on over there that prompted Paul to write that letter? Well, apparently, there were some questions about Christ's deity. There must have been a cult-like influence that denied Christ was supremely God. Now, if you look in Colossians chapter 1, these are some of the most outstanding scriptures affirming Christ's deity, and they help us to understand the introduction of the Laodicean letter and why Jesus said that he was the beginning of the creation. Was he created or was he the creator? Colossians chapter 1, verse number 15. Who is the image? That is, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every Creature, which means that he has the preeminent place over every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Verse number 20 is the Amen of Genesis 3.15. And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. Do you have any trouble understanding whether Paul thought Jesus was created? Did he believe that Jesus is Jehovah God or did he not? And the deity of Jesus Christ, that is the battleground with the cults. Look in chapter 2, verse number 9, where Paul wrote, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Jehovah Witnesses change that to read, Because it is in him that all the fullness of divine quality dwells bodily. Now that sounds pretty much the same, but there is an eternity of difference in those two statements. They say that Jesus has divine quality, which is different from saying that he is fully God. In John 1.1, the apostle John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Jehovah Witnesses changed that to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so they make a distinction between God and Jesus, making Jesus inferior to God, which in the Greek is theos, which means the supreme being. And that is the battleground with the cults. To them, Jesus is not the Amen. He's not the Holy One. He's not the one and only Creator. He's not Jehovah God. He is not self-affirming. He needs someone greater to affirm Him. So He is not the God. He just has God-like qualities. And so in Colossae, there must have been a discussion about this. They're talking about the deity of Christ, and perhaps there was a a faction that had risen in the church that disputed apostolic teaching. And so Paul had to clarify this and say that Jesus is not a God, because that's damnable heresy. You can't be saved if you believe that Jesus is not supremely and uniquely God. And so you ask me, are Jehovah Witnesses saved? And are Mormons saved? And I'll say, no. Not if they toe the party line, they're not. They can't be saved if you deny the doctrine of Jesus Christ. If you say that Jesus is not full deity, that is, heretical, soul-damning doctrine. Is that the problem at Laodicea? You're still in Colossians, look at chapter 2, verse number 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. These two churches were very close together. The same doctrinal conflict is in both. And now we understand why that in the end of the Colossian letter, Paul said, this letter needs to be read to the church at Laodicea. 
And I believe that helps us to understand why Jesus stated his authority at the beginning of the Laodicean letter. He is the Amen. He is the God of truth. He's the God of the Old and the New Testaments. He is the creator, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, what's the difference between Colossae and Laodicea? It's a difference in the way that the church accepts truth. How does, how does the church and how do the people of God appropriate the truth? It's 30 years later in Revelation chapter 3 and Laodicea failed to deal properly with the truth that Paul wrote in the Colossian letter. There were other things that got in their way and we'll get into those next week and then we'll understand why those things were in their way when fundamental doctrines like the deity of Christ are denied. So this is an error about Christ that leaves him on the outside of the church. And so Jesus simply becomes the spectator at Laodicea. He's not on the inside directing the church. Now there's still another point that I'd like to make from the Colossian letter. I want you to look again in the fourth chapter of Colossians in verse 17 where Paul mentions a man by the name of Archippus. Colossians 4.17 And say to Archippus... Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Who is Archippus? Paul's letters are interwoven with references. In Philemon, Archippus was one of Paul's co-laborers. Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae, the Colossian church, and Paul wrote to him at Colossae and mentioned Archippus, who is one of his helpers. Now, evidently, Archippus started his ministry in Colossae, and then at some point he moved over to the nearby Laodicean church and became the pastor of that church. And for some reason, he wasn't faithful to the ministry, and the error that Paul addressed to the Colossians needed to be told to Archippus at Laodicea. He needed to be made straight on the essentials of New Testament Christology. But at least we do know this. If we're not sure about that, we do know this, that the Laodicean church failed on this issue. And by the time that you get to Revelation, which is 30 years later, they can no longer be counted as one of the Lord's churches. Today, they are the poster boys for fake Christianity. They're a dangerous counterfeit that must be stopped. Last week I said, I believe the Laodicean church most characterizes the modern church. There are so many of these Laodicean churches around us, all through our city, all through our state, all through our country, that it's a rare find when you find a good church. When you find a church standing for Christ, that is like a jewel sitting on top of a manure pile of the counterfeits. And you say, Pastor Smith, well, how could you say such things? How can you talk like that? We're all Christians, aren't we? We're all doing the same things and we all love each other. Love's not our issue. Fighting the devil is the issue. Fighting heresy over Jesus Christ, that's the issue. The Lord stands outside that church and calls to them from the outside. He does call in love, but where is He? On the outside. So he's not inside fellowshipping with them. He's not inside commending them because they're good family people. No, he doesn't say one good word about anything that they did. 
And so on what basis is a church to be commended? Well, we found that out at the Philadelphian church. We looked at it and Jesus said to them, You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. And at Laodicea, they hadn't kept the word and they did deny his name. And he won't go inside a church that's not true to his name and keeps his word. And so on that basis, we say, no, we won't have fellowship with them. No, we're not going where Christ doesn't go. He's the amen. And we affirm it. They don't. That's the doctrine that divides it, divides us. This is a, this is the most important doctrine. If Christ is not God, then He is not Lord and Savior. So how do you get to Jesus if He's not on the inside of the church? Well, you've got to start by recognizing He is faithful and true. You start by recognizing there is no higher authority than Him. You start by hearing what He says, that He is the Amen, the self-affirming God, and He swears by no greater. And the desire of the Amen is to be on the inside. And with a compassionate plea that He will heal them and change them, He knocks. He knocks. And he'll only enter if they listen. Now secondly, we move on to the disaster they allowed. In each letter there's a characterization of the city or the culture that Jesus used as a springboard to make his point emphatic. And this is the part of sermonizing that, that's gone off track. Preachers love illustrations. Sometimes illustrations take over the sermon, you wonder, what happened to the main point? What happened to the Bible? We've just got an illustration. And I don't know what's happened to Baptist preaching that illustrations have become more important than the Bible. So that our colleges don't train preachers anymore, they train storytellers. Now I know a, a Baptist preacher who claims that he's memorized 11,000 verses of Scripture. That's a very impressive feat. I am impressive by, impressed by someone who can learn 11,000 scriptures, but the part that he doesn't usually tell is he learned 33,000 illustrations to go with him. And I tend to think that 11,000 scriptures is a whole lot better than 33,000 illustrations. The best illustrations are Bible illustrations because you don't have to leave the Bible to use them. And you kill two birds with one stone. You give people the Bible... And then you give people more Bible. And we're often advised to preach the way that Jesus preached. And Jesus often used illustrations. He taught in parables. He illustrated. And those parables became Scripture because He's God. He's the Amen. I'm not nearly as good as He was about illustrations. I think preachers need to spend more time understanding his illustrations rather than making up ones of our own. But those are opinions, and I'm not saying, oh, never use an illustration that's outside the Bible, because sometimes I do. But I also understand that Jesus had this unique, marvelous ability to hit home through familiar things that people recognized. This is part of the issue here in studying Revelation in these churches, uh, most people have no idea of the background of these letters. And so thus they have no understanding of his points. So we need to have some kind of an idea what was going on 2,000 years ago that will help us to understand the context. Why does he say these things? And the point that Jesus makes will pop out 
when we have the context, and that makes things come alive. An example is what I showed you about the Colossian letter. Two churches that are very close to one another, as close as Rohnert Park and Windsor. And because people in Rohnert Park are pretty much like people in Windsor, we have the same problems. The meaning of the introduction of the letter is found out by looking at the Colossian letter. There, the context is established. And then likewise, in these next verses, the points that are made must be discovered in the history and the character of this city. Verses 15 and 16 are the two most recognizable verses about Laodicea. This is where we get the sickening church. This is where we get lukewarm Christianity. It's the source of worthless, Christless Christianity. Jesus said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Are cold and hot and lukewarm, are those special words here? Are they of any special significance at Laodicea? Well, as it turns out, the geography of the city is the setup for Christ's message to this church. He characterizes their spiritual condition by the existing physical issues of Laodicea. Laodicea was in the Lycus River Valley. It was a very heavily traveled region because it was a crossing place of two major roads. One road was an east-west uh, trade route where people traveled across moving goods from the Mediterranean to the interior of the, of the continent. The other road was a north-south road connecting the two cities of Pergamos and Sardis. And this made Laodicea a very busy place. There were people crisscrossing through that area from all directions. And then nearby, in a cluster of cities, were Hierapolis and also Colossae. Hierapolis was famous for its mineral hot springs. That is very, very hot water where people would go for the healing qualities of the minerals in the springs. And that's Jesus' reference for hot in verse number 15. On the other end of the valley, next to the mountains, was a cold flow of water. And the word that's used for cold in this text is the word that means freezing cold. And that's the reference on the opposite end of the spectrum. Both of those have their virtues. And in the middle is Laodicea. And what is their problem? Well, it's a water problem. They have no reliable source of water. So that kept the city from being a strategic military location. There has to be a good local water supply, and the city didn't have it. There was a river nearby, but it tended to dry up if it wasn't rainy season, so they couldn't depend on it. A few years ago, we toured a remarkable engineering feat, and this wasn't something built in the last few years, but built 2,500 years ago, and that's when King Hezekiah needed a water source for the city of Jerusalem. And he dug a massive tunnel through solid rock under the city to secretly bring in water so that Jerusalem could sustain itself in a siege. And they needed that because one of the ways that you conquer a, a walled city is to cut off their water supply. Well, Laodicea had no good water supply, and so to try and solve that problem, they masterminded their own engineering feat. 
they built an underground aqueduct to a nearby city and they began to pipe in water. Part of that piping is still seen in the ruins today. But the problem was the distance and the quality of the water. Now remember I just mentioned Hierapolis a moment ago and the minerals and the hot springs that are there and minerals are a characteristic of that region. And so the water that Laodicea piped in was laden with all of these minerals. Now another adventure that we had in Israel was when we visited the Dead Sea and it's so full of minerals that it feels like slime. Oh, they say it has therapeutic value, but I had no desire to test it. Gary did. And uh, his inner tube pictures are quite convincing. It did something special for him. Um, I was going to bring the pictures, but I thought, no, you'll never look at him the same again if I show those. But the mineral water, that's, that's nasty stuff. And that's the kind of water that they pipe through their system. Sometimes the pipes would clog because the minerals would settle out. And still today, you can see that in the ruins. Now, if you take apart a the trap that's underneath your sink, and you can see all the gunk that's settled there, well, just imagine that you drank from the drain pipe rather than the supply pipe, and you'd have an idea of what water was like in Laodicea. The other problem with that distance that it had to be piped was the temperature of the water. It was neither refreshingly cold, nor was it piping hot. Now, you can deal with those two extremes. You can make drinks that are really good out of hot water and drinks that are good out of cold water. But they had slimy mineral water that's neither cold nor hot. Now, the, th this is Laodicea in water. Bad-tasting, lukewarm mineral water. And Jesus said that Christless Christianity is like that. And he said their works are like that. They're not fit for him. And he didn't really need to explain all of this to them like I just did to you. They understood the reference. Anybody knew what he was talking about if he said, lay out a sea, you know that place, they have lukewarm, nasty water. And he applied that to their spiritual condition. They understood it. To add to the misery, he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now can I help you with that? and give you a lovely mental picture? Don't think that he said, I'll spit you out. No, no, no. He's more graphic than that. Well, at home you probably have some chemicals that are under your sink that you don't want your kids to get their hands on. They're harsh chemicals and they're poisonous. Some of them will have a warning label on them that says, if you swallow this, immediately induce vomiting. Some of them just may say, take an emetic. Now the word spew in verse 15 is the word emeo. And it means the same as emetic. Emetic. In common terms it means vomit. And I think the King James translators had this right when they said spew because that adds another dimension to vomit. It's a violent vomiting that we know today as hurling. I think you know what I mean, don't you? You know, you get sick and you, and you puke. Sometimes you get really sick and it's coming up and you can't get to the bathroom quickly enough and you get it up in your mouth and your cheeks start to swell, they're expanding and you're trying to hold on but you can't and so it just goes everywhere. All over everywhere. And I think I needed to tell you that to get your mind off lunch today so we can finish up here. That's what Jesus says in this text. 
The Laodiceans need no explanation for that either. They understood what he meant. So why did I tell you this? It's because I want you to get a picture of what Christ thought about this church. Do you want me to go easy on heresy? Oh, he wasn't a little upset about this. Tums don't fix this. He has to get this sickening stuff out of him. Now notice what he says on either side of this. He says, I can take you cold. You know, that's a little bit of amazing in itself. I can take you hot. I, I, we stand that'll understand that a little bit better. I can take you cold, but I can't take you lukewarm. Now think of it this way, because I think the point is often missed. I can take you cold. I can. If you're ice cream. Ice cream's good when it's cold, right? That's fine. Ice cream's all right. Go to Port of Subs even, get a cold ham sandwich. That's okay. It's supposed to be that way. And it's good. You bring me a cup of hot coffee like I fix every morning. I burn my tongue on it every time, but it's good. Put a steak on the grill, get it up to 600 degrees and cook it until it's sizzling and burn out all that blood and it's good. You know, I'm like Jorge. It's got to be dead and proved to be dead. It's good, good and hot. What I don't like is cold, lukewarm food. And I don't like, I don't like lukewarm food that's supposed to be hot. Have you seen what I do at, at, at church dinners? Watch me sometime going through the line. I always feel the underside of the dish. Is it hot? If it's supposed to be a hot dish, is it hot? And if it's not hot, turn up the fire on the chafing dish. I'm not going to eat it that way. I mean, don't you, don't you just love getting a big bite of mashed potatoes and gravy and you find out it's lukewarm? Stand back, it's time to hurl. When, when I was in San Diego at Christmas, Clarissa fixed some oatmeal. And Elena, one of our, our, our youngest granddaughter, I should say, is three years old. I think that's her name. And uh, she, she, she just loves oatmeal. And Clarissa said, you know, she loves that. She'll, she'll leave it and she'll come back two hours later and eat it. I said, no, no, that's time to hurl. You don't eat that stuff cold and hard. Don't, don't do that. And that's what Jesus thinks about this kind of Christianity. He wants a church where there's, there's no doubt about where it stands. Especially about Him. Where do you stand? And if you're a cold Christian, we know what we've got. You're not going to do much, so we don't expect much. I don't spend much time worrying about Christians that are cold because brother and sister cold will do what they always do. They're frozen to the pew and that's where they're going to be all the time. The hot guy, he's on the other end and he's always bouncing off the walls. You can't hold him down. You can't give him enough to do. He's like Kyle. You have to invent new things to volunteer for because he's already volunteered for everything. But then there are some of these hot guys and gals that are like Peter. Peter always charged in without a strategy. You remember when he was going to protect Jesus when Jesus was arrested? So he charged at the mob with an 18-inch blade and cut off a man's ear? You might not want to try being the only one armed against Roman soldiers. And so Jesus just looked at Peter and he said, That's my boy. All brawn and no brains. But I love him. So he just picked up the ear and put it back on and said, Settle down, I think I've got this. Peter was hot-tempered, must have had red hair or something. But uh, you remember he jumped out of the boat, jumped out of the boat and tried to walk on water. 
And those of you that are my age remember something like uh, Reagan said to Carter, there you go again. And Jesus can deal with those things. But what he won't put up with is indifference. When your Christianity is ho-hum, when you can take it or leave it, Jesus won't deal with it. It's sickening. William Barclay made this interesting statement. The problem of modern evangelism is not hostility to Christianity. It would be better if it were so. The problem is that to many, Christianity and the church have ceased to have any relevance. And people regard them with complete indifference. And I agree with that. If we're indifferent towards Christ, we produce lifeless, Christless Christianity. And what kind of difference does that make in the world? None. To the world, Christianity is a non-starter. Who cares about it and why should they care about it if we don't care about it? Many churches are like social clubs. And we fail at being a social club. You know why? Because the world's much better at it. They're a whole lot better at social clubs than we are. A country club membership is better if activity, social activity is all that you want. And that's what many people want the church to be. It's the place to have social activities. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's all that it is, go to some other place because they're better at those things than we are. Go join the Kiwanis Club, Sierra Club or something. Maybe they do something good. Why do you want to tack Christian onto a social club if you don't need him? He just gets in the way. And that's what modern Christianity has done. It's gone off track. They're on another track, and I'm afraid it's the Broadway that leads to hell. And Christ watches that train as it goes by, and He's not going to get on. He won't get on that train. He doesn't go inside the church that would rather have Him outside on the stoop. Christ is just bothersome to self-made plans. Well, I'm out of time for today. There's more to talk about. This disastrous water, that provided Christ's first illustration. There's more to this. Some very interesting things that he says in the rest of the letter. So what he will do here is he will address what they think their spiritual condition is. And then he'll tell them what it truly is. And those two things are not the same. And do you know, truly, there are churches who think that they are top dog for Jesus Christ, when all they really are is just dogs. They're Laodicea, poster boys for Christless Christianity. We don't want that to be us. So let's stand up and let it be known who is the Lord of the church. He is the supreme Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, and in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We do want to recognize and say with all assurance that we do believe that you are the only supreme Lord God. We recognize, Lord, your right to rule over us. Lord, there is no one greater than you. You are self-affirmed truth. You are the faithful and the true. And I pray, Lord, that the people of our church would be ready to stand up at all times and proclaim that truth that we believe Jesus Christ is the one and only, the one true and living God. 
And if we are to be saved, it is to Him that we must surrender. And that's not half-hearted surrender, that is whole surrender. The willingness to give up everything that we are. And turn to Him in full repentance. And then faith in the gospel of Christ that can change us from what we are, vile sinners, into holy, sanctified children of God. Lord, help us not only to claim that for ourselves, but to be a church that tells others how it can be done, how they can become Christians, how they can know Christ truly is Lord. And we must be willing to preach that gospel message wherever we go to see people saved. Help us, Lord, to do that. Be with us, Lord. Be with the Berean Baptist Church and help us not to be Laodicean, but a church that stands for the Word and for the person of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org